are jumping into a new book today, the book of Ruth. So turn in your Bibles to Ruth chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 1 through 5, and that's on page 411 of your pew Bibles. Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Milan and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Thus ends our reading of God's inerrant word. May all who hear it be drawn to their redeeming God, the only one who can overcome our losses in life. Well, we are starting this new series in the book of Ruth, and any time we begin a new book in the Bible, the, the first thing that we should do is to ask certain questions. For instance, when was this book written? Was it written when Israel was still a nation, or was it written much, much later after they had been taken captive by Babylon? What kind of writing was this? Is this poetry? Is it historical narrative? Is it prophetic? Who is the author? And to whom is this author writing to? Was it written by a scribe like the book of Jeremiah? Or was it written by a king like the book of Proverbs? And what about the audience? Was this written to a specific people? Was there a certain nation that this author had in mind when he or she penned these words? And if so, what, what was the purpose of this writing? What, what is the central theme that, that kind of carries the story forward? Finding answers to these questions will go a long way in helping us to understand what God is trying to communicate to us through this book. And if we are going to be diligent students, diligent students of God's word, then, then we must do the, the difficult work of finding these answers. And yet, unfortunately, we don't always have the answers that we're looking for. For instance, we really have no idea who the author was, who wrote this. And we are only guessing as to the time frame as to when it was written. But just because we don't have certainty, that doesn't mean that there aren't any clues to these answers. And just because we don't have the, the solid proof, that, that doesn't mean that if we do our homework that we can't make an educated guess. For one, we know that in the last verse of this book, there is a mention of King David. And so we know that the earliest that this book could have been written was during David's lifetime, 
after he had become king. And given the details of this story, whomever this author was, they would have had to have had a a personal knowledge into David's family history. They would have had to have had some sort of insight that, that, that wouldn't have been public knowledge to the rest of Israel. And, and so given these clues, we, we might surmise that, that, that this book would have been written either during the reign of King David or perhaps of King Solomon. The, the, the author may have even been one of those two men. But the bigger question than, than authorship is why would this story be written in the first place? What would motivate this author to share this tale? That's where the, the major themes of our story come into play. For, for those themes, they will give us a clue as to the author's purpose, as to the why. Why write this book? And there, there are three themes that, that really stick out in this book. One, and I talked about this with the children, we, we see the theme of God's providence. Now, now, providence is nothing more than God's way of working through the normal things of life, the normal things of this world in order to work out His purposes. And as I mentioned to the kids before, there are no miracles that we find performed in this book of Ruth. And yet, God's fingerprints are all over this story. Two, in pretty much all of the main players that we see throughout this book, we we discover a certain trait that is common amongst them. A characteristic that that repeats itself in the lives of these people. And and that quality is is known as hesed in the the Hebrew. Hesed is this Hebrew word that carries upon itself a lot of meaning. It it connotes a, a steadfast love or a compassionate loyalty. It it is a, a merciful kindness shown to someone who... It is not necessary to give that kindness to. And and so this word hesed, or maybe I should say hesedness, this hesedness, this steadfast love that we find, is woven all throughout this narrative. And finally, the third major theme that we will discover in this book is this theme of redemption. Our main character, who is Naomi, and not Ruth, by the way, she will find a restoration of what was lost, particularly when it comes to the family lineage of her husband, Elimelech. Providence, Hesed love, and redemption are the three main themes that are are woven together kind of like an intricate quilt crafted with careful hands. And so as we go through this story, as we go through this book, pay careful notice of how God in his providence demonstrates his hesedness or his steadfast love in order to bring about his redemption. Redemption. 
So my hope is that over these next six weeks, you will see the power of God, that you will experience God's character, and that you will come to a knowledge of God's ultimate purpose. But to sum everything up, ultimately Ruth is a love story. But not a love story in the way we typically think of a love story. It's not so much about the love of a man and a woman, although that does occur, but about the love of a daughter towards her mother that was spurred on by the love that God had towards a broken widow. But to get to that final point, to get to that part of the story, we must first begin our tale with tragedy. For what we will find in these first five verses that we go through is this roller coaster of a ride that is the life of an Israelite woman named Naomi. Look at verses 1 and 2. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. We begin in Judah, in the town of Bethlehem, during a time when there were no kings. And because there were no kings, there was very little that, that kept the people of Israel united. Sure, they had the law of Moses, and, and every now and then God would raise up these judges in, in, in the people's times of need to rescue them. But beyond that, these were pretty much lawless times, and this was pretty much a lawless land where everyone did as he or she saw fit. But in our story, we also encounter this famine, a famine that had struck the land. Food was scarce, and times were, were bleaker than normal. The people of Bethlehem, which ironically means house of bread, they had no bread. The, the fields were empty and so were their stomachs. And here was this man, Elimelech, who needed to provide not only for his wife, Naomi, but for his two sons as well. But there was no food. And they were struggling to survive. The land in which he had inherited from God was not producing. And so in desperation, he, he decides to travel to this land called Moab, to a foreign nation in order to fill their, the stomachs of his family, in order that they might not die. Now our author makes note that this Elimelech was an Ephrathite. And the Ephrathites came from the lineage of Caleb. You remember who Caleb is, right? The spies that went into the land. And Caleb was one of the two good spies and the ten bad spies. Well, Caleb ended up being appointed the leader of the tribe of Judah. And so these Ephrathites, they were of an elite class. 
Elimelech was most likely a prominent man in his community. And this is why it is all the more striking that that he would need to seek aid in Moab. It's as if Jeff Bezos suddenly became poor and had to beg outside of a Walmart. Think about that for a moment. Now Moab, this land that they went to, was a land east of the Dead Sea. And so it was nearby, but not too nearby. It was outside of Israel. But it's where the Moabites lived, right? Why else would they call it Moab? And it was this this fertile plateau, uh, roughly about 1,000 feet above sea level, that, that could produce crops and was producing crops at that time. And the people who lived there, these Moabites, they were the descendants of Lot. After Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed, Lot and his two daughters, they they took refuge in the mountains. But they were all alone. And these two young women thought that they would never find a man. And that in them, their, their father's line would come to an end. This is what we read about, right? They got their father drunk. They slept with him, thinking that it was their duty to carry on the family name. Now, you may cringe at this, but one's lineage at that time was of the utmost importance. And these two daughters thought that they were doing the only thing that they could to honor their father. Well, from that union came both the Moabites and the Ammonites. Look at, look at Genesis 19, verse 36. So both of Lot's daughter became pregnant by their father. The older daughter had a son, and she named him Moab. He is the father of the Moabites today. The younger daughter also had a son, and she named him Ben-Ami. And he is the father of the Ammonites of today. Here's the deal. These Moabites, they were not friends with the Israelites. These two people had little love for one another. And the reason for this disdain was was because that when the Israelites had crossed the Red Sea, when when they were wandering in the wilderness, it was the Moabites who had refused to welcome them or allow them easy passage through their land. Instead, they hired the prophet Balaam in order to put a curse on these refugees. And for that reason, we we see this decree in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 23, verses 3 through 6 says this, No Ammonite or Moabite or any of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, even down to the tenth generation. For they did not come to meet you with bread and water on your way when you came out of Egypt. And they hired Balaam, son of Beor from Pethor, and Aram Naharaim, to pronounce a curse on you. However, the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam, but turned the curse into a blessing for you, because the Lord your God loves you. Do not seek a treaty or friendship with them as long as you live. Now think about this. Here we have this man named Elimelech. He was an Ephrathite one of the leading citizens of the tribe of Judah. 
And he was reduced to seeking aid in Moab from a people that came forth from incest, from a nation that had been hostile towards the Jews. To many of Elimelech's fellow countrymen, this would have been seen as a disgraceful act. It would have brought about shame to his name. But not only that, but, but Elimelech and his family taking this journey would have, would have put them into dangerous territory. I mean, there had been wars between these two people. And so to go to Moab as an Israelite was not safe. And yet the, salmon was, the, the, the famine was so bad, so severe, that it forced this man and his family to journey into hostile and unknown territory. And yet, this was God's way of rescuing this family. For they found refuge in Moab, and their stomachs were filled. Instead of Abraham rescuing Lot, we now see Lot rescuing Abraham. But just when you think all is well, we then read this. Look at, look at verse 3 from our passage. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. Elimelech died. But not only did he die, he died away from his homeland. No reason given why, nor any explanation as to what had happened, just that he was now gone. Was his death some type of judgment from God? Had he committed some egregious sin? Did the fact that he sought refuge in Moab anger the Lord? Or was it the other way around? Perhaps God was not powerful enough to prevent this tragedy. Did God lose his sovereignty? Is he God only in Israel and not in Moab? Or maybe, just maybe, God had some other purpose behind the death of this Israelite. Whatever the case, we are left without answers. But not without hope, as we'll soon see. Look at the next verse. Look at verse 4. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. The hope of Naomi comes in the marriages of her two sons. In this glad tidying of events, God rescues this woman through Moab once again. And he does so by producing wives for her sons. She now has the prospect of future grandchildren. Those who would be able to take care of her and carry on the family line. These two wives, Orpah and, and Ruth, they would have been the healing balm that would restore Naomi's wounded heart. Certainly now that she had two daughters, a, a grandson would, would soon follow, right? But as I mentioned before, the be, at the beginning of this tale, it, it's like a roller coaster, right? 
And on a roller coaster, once you go up, you got to go back down. Look, look at the rest of our passage. After they had lived there about 10 years, both Malon and Kilion also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Ten years had passed, and now Malon and Kilion, her two sons, the sons of this dear, dear woman, they were now dead. And just as it was with Naomi's husband, Elimelech, we are given no explanations, no reasons for their death. I mean, why would both men die so young? Did they get into some sort of trouble with the locals? Did the fact that they were both Israelites get them killed? Or perhaps this was more of a natural death. Maybe they both caught some sort of disease that they could not overcome. Or maybe it's just random chance. The, the luck of the draw, right? They both died from different causes. Was God punishing them? Was he angry with them for marrying Moabite women? Again, we, we can only speculate as to the answers of these questions. But, but whatever the case, this, this Israelite woman, she was standing by herself, stuck in a foreign land, bereft of her husband and her two sons. But certainly after 10 years, there would have been a, a grandson to claim, am I right? And yet there is no mention of any grandson. And as we get further into this book, we'll discover that there is no grandson. And this is a serious, serious problem. For if there is no grandson, then there is no heir. And if there is no heir, then there is no one to lay claim on the inheritance, no one to receive the land that was given to God, or given to Elimelech by God, and no one to carry on Elimelech's family name. Elimelech would be blotted out. And in Israel, there was no greater tragedy than for a family to cease to exist. What was Naomi to do now that she had been abandoned? To whom could she turn in order to find rescue? She had no sons to take care of her. She had no grandsons in whom she could put her hopes in. She was an Israelite widow destitute in the land of Moab. Moab. Moab, which was supposed to be her family's salvation, had now become its demise. It, it had taken everything away from her. For when she, when she had left Israel, the only thing that was empty was her stomach. But now she had an empty heart. And in a very real sense, this woman was nothing but a hollow shell. She was a woman who had lost her own identity. Maybe you are here today and like Naomi, you have suffered a great loss. Perhaps life has just beaten you down and you, and you don't know why. It's as if, as if you have been cursed by God for no good reason except for he just chose to do it. Or maybe God doesn't exist. 
Because if he, if he does exist, then he can't be as good as you thought he was. You are just the butt end of some tragic joke. You keep searching for answers, but you find none. If you got the email that I sent out earlier this week, I had encouraged each and every one of you to, to read through all four chapters of this book entitled Ruth. And if you did that, then you, then you already know how this story ends. And you will have some understanding of why God took this woman, Naomi, and, uh, on the journey that he did. But from Naomi's point of view, at this point in time in her life, she doesn't understand. She has no clue. No idea of the, of the hesed love that God will bring her way. She knows nothing of God's redemptive plan in her life. Might I suggest that if you are here today and you are suffering, that you too may be in a Naomi moment. That the troubles that you face, though they seem pointless, though they have come about for no good reason, that there, and though there, there is no explanation, they just simply left you in the dark, seemingly without hope, though all that is happening to you, God might have something in store that you just don't know about. And so while you're asking the question, where is God in all of this? Is he even real? And if he is, does he not care? Today, if this is you, let me encourage you with these words. God is real. And he has a hesed love for you as well. He has a compassion towards your pain. He has mercy towards your helpless state. And though you don't know the end of your story, he does. And so as we go through this book of Ruth, my hope is, is that this, this hessedness of God, this, this steadfast love, will become more and more clear, more and more evident, in order that your heart might be healed. But maybe you're here today and life for you is just fine and dandy. There, there's nothing going on that you would call disastrous or tragic. You're not in a Naomi moment. Well, there's a message here for you as well. You see, God desires that, that, that you would look at Naomi's life. This woman who had lost everything. This woman who is now empty. That you would see this broken widow and develop a hesed love yourself. God wants you to ache for this woman and to show her compassion. And again, as we go through this book of Ruth, my hope is that you will see what a hesed love looks like and be moved to love those around you. Those who are hurting and are in their own Naomi moments. That you would demonstrate the same type of loyalty and, and mercy that Naomi will eventually receive as you continue on in these four short chapters. 
And finally, whether you are hurting or whether you you are in that sweet spot of life, there is another lesson that, that can be taught to each and every one of us. And that is the lesson of God's providence. That God works all things for the good of those who love him. For when you think about Naomi's situation, I mean, who can rescue her besides God? She's a widow. She she is past the age of bearing children. And both her sons are now dead. She is a woman without hope. She is a woman without answers. And it would take a miracle from God to rescue her. Or would it? Remember, there are no miracles performed in this book. Would God be able to orchestrate this woman's redemption through everyday means? We are about to find out. But for now, let us consider Naomi. Let us consider her tragic state. And let it move us towards a hesed love. For it is there that you will find your Redeemer. It is there that you will find Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, often in life we we don't have the answers that we're looking for. We don't know the reason for our suffering. And yet your word tells us that you are in control. And that you desire what is best for us. Help us to believe this truth. And we pray that over the next few weeks as we go through this book that we will develop a hesed love. A hesed love for those around us. And that we would understand in a fuller sense the hesed love that you have for us. We can only do this by the power of your Holy Spirit. So we ask that you would move within us and help us to see things from your perspective. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.